Welcome to the September 22nd, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. In today's podcast, we'll take a quick look at the latest European Leukemia Net recommendations for the diagnosis and management of acute myeloid leukemia. We'll also describe a comprehensive analysis of a phase 3 trial indicating that MRD is a strong outcome predictor over the entire natural history of mantle cell lymphoma, setting the stage for potential risk stratification tools that may be suitable for MRD-guided treatment. But first, let's look at a large U.S. registry study demonstrating that black patients with idiopathic thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura had a shorter time to relapse and less response to rituximab compared to white patients. These findings suggest a potential need for closer monitoring, early retreatment, and alternative treatments. The first research article, entitled Race, Rituximab, and Relapse in TTP, is from Shruti Chaturvedi of Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, and co-authors for the United States Thrombotic Microangiopathies Consortium. Immune-mediated thrombotic thrombocytopenia purpura, or ITTP, is a rare, life-threatening hemologic disorder characterized by thrombocytopenia, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, and end-organ ischemia. ITTP is caused by an autoantibody-mediated deficiency of ADAM-TS13, an enzyme that plays an important role in regulating the function of von Willebrand factor. Mortality related to acute ITCP has declined dramatically due to advances in therapy, including therapeutic plasma exchange, and more recently, the introduction of caplicizumab, an antibody fragment that targets von Willebrand factor. However, patients with ITTP suffer repeated relapses, exposing them to additional risk of morbidity and mortality. Immunosuppressants, including corticosteroids and rituximab, are recommended to reduce relapse risk. However, much of the evidence supporting their use comes from observational data and smaller clinical studies. In the United States, the demographics of the disease are unique, with black patients significantly overrepresented in ITTP cohorts. Yet there have been few studies looking at potential racial disparities in outcome. Now, Chaturvedi and co-authors present analyses of racial differences in survival and relapse using the United States Thrombotic Microangiopathy Consortium ITTP registry. Their analysis included patients with confirmed ITTP treated at 15 participating registry sites for episodes that occurred between 1995 and 2020. The outcomes studied were death associated with acute ITTP and relapse-free survival. Patients had to have either ADAM-TS13 activity less than 10%, ADAM-TS13 activity less than 20% with an inhibitor or antibody, or for patients with a first episode prior to the availability of the ADAM-TS13 assay in 2006, a relapse with documented ADAM-TS13 deficiency. 645 registry patients met the study inclusion criteria, with 1,049 documented ITTP episodes among them. Mortality due to acute disease did not differ by race in this study. The rate of death associated with acute ITTP was 3.3% overall, 3.2% in black patients, and 3.7% in white patients. However, race was linked to relapse-free survival, including some findings that investigators said were unanticipated. 
Relapses occurred in 34% of patients, including 40% of black patients and 26% of white patients. In a multivariate model, black race came out as the strongest predictor of relapse. Black race was associated with shorter relapse-free survival versus white race, with a hazard ratio of 1.60, a 95% confidence interval of 1.16 to 2.21, and a p-value of 0.0039. Investigators looked more closely at relapse-free survival by race and treatment type, rituximab or corticosteroids. Unexpectedly, a lack of improvement in relapse-free survival was seen among black patients receiving rituximab. White patients achieved significant benefit from rituximab plus corticosteroids versus corticosteroids alone, with a hazard ratio of 0.37 and a p-value of 0.0044. But in black patients, the hazard ratio was 0.96 and the p-value 0.81. Among those patients with de novo ITTP, black patients had shorter relapse-free survival versus white patients, regardless of treatment received. In patients with relapsed ITTP, rituximab improved relapse-free survival significantly in white patients, but not in black patients. It remains unclear whether factors such as access to care may be contributing to these observed racial disparities. However, the proportion of episodes treated with rituximab was not significantly different, and in fact was numerically higher among black patients, at 51% versus 47% for white patients. There was also no significant difference in the proportion of patients treated with preemptive immunosuppressive therapy. 1.8% of black patients, 1.1% of white patients, and 2.3% of patients of other or unknown race. In a commentary, Oladipo Cole and Allison A. King of the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri, said these findings show that race impacts relapse risk and response to rituximab in patients with ITTP. If genetic differences do underlie these differences, they write, then perhaps there are single nucleotide polymorphisms influenced by environmental factors that are more common in black individuals. Although the current study did not include measures of socioeconomic status, it is known that blacks in the United States more often live in areas with high levels of poverty and toxic stress than white patients. And other investigators have found associations between SNPs and levels of ADAM-TS13, von Willebrand factor, race, gender, and the incidence and severity of ITTP. These data generate multiple hypotheses. There could be specific disease-related modifiers encoded in the genome, or outcomes could be impacted negatively by socioeconomic differences in access to care, treatment adherence, or environmental exposures. Collaborative efforts are needed to support analyses of the genetics, sociodemographics, and environmental factors behind ITTP. While this work is underway, Cole and King conclude, black patients with ITTP require closer monitoring for relapse and may benefit from alternative therapy if the response to rituximab is not satisfactory. Let's turn our attention to the new AML guidelines titled Diagnosis and Management of Acute Myeloid Leukemia in Adults, 2022 Recommendations from an International Expert Panel on behalf of the European Leukemia Net. The first author is Hartmut Donner of Ulm University Hospital in Ulm, Germany. The 2010 and 2017 editions of the ELN recommendations for AML diagnosis and treatment are widely utilized by clinicians and investigators. Substantial advances have transpired since 2017, from better AML disease classification, improved understanding of the molecular pathogenesis of AML, 
and also the development of several new therapies, including drugs that target FLT3, IDH1, IDH2, and BCL2. The 2022 ELN update published in Blood is authored by an international panel of recognized experts in AML research and clinical management. This report details the latest advances, updates to the guidelines, and the implications of those updates for patient care and clinical trials. We'll go over a few highlights in this podcast. Of note, therapy-related AML is no longer considered a distinct disease entity. Likewise, the category of myelodysplasia-related changes, or AML-MRC, has been removed. The recommendations state that genetic characteristics are more relevant than clinical history when it comes to AML disease classification. As such, exposure to prior therapy and prior history of MDS or MDS-MPN are used as diagnostic qualifiers for disease entities defined by their genetic profile. The 2022 ELN recommendations also include changes to the BLAST thresholds defining AML. For nearly all AML subtypes with specific recurrent genetic abnormalities, the diagnosis of AML can now be established if there are greater than or equal to 10% BLASTs in the bone marrow or peripheral blood. Examples include patients with the well-known translocations of chromosomes 15 and 17, 8 and 21, inversion of chromosome 16, and many others. In contrast, AML with the BCR ABLE1 translocation still requires greater than or equal to 20% blasts, avoiding potential overlap with chronic myeloid leukemia in the accelerated phase. Certain other AML subtypes also require greater than or equal to 20% blasts for diagnosis, including those with mutations in genes typical of myelodysplasia, such as ASXL1, BCOR, EZH2, RUNX1, SF3B1, SRSF2, STAG2, U2AF1, or ZRSR2. In addition, a new category recognizes cases that straddle the fence between MDS and AML. This includes cases of MDS-AML, in association with defined genomic abnormalities that have 10-19% to blasts in the bone marrow or blood. As before, the new guidelines have updated discussions of optimal therapies for induction, consolidation, stem cell transplantation, and relapsed disease for patients with various subtypes of AML. The induction therapy section incorporates discussion of alternatives to anthracyclines and cytarabine, the use of mitostorin and gemtuzumab ozagamycin in patients with FLT3 mutant AML and CD33 antigen-positive AML, respectively, and the emergence of CPX351 as a new option for patients with AML related to previous therapy. The consolidation therapy section weighs the relative benefit of consecutive administration over alternate-day administration of cytarabine, as well as equivocal data for high-dose cytarabine that argues against its clinical use. Under maintenance therapy, the panel acknowledges approval of oral azacitidine and discusses limitations to the generalizability of the data and discusses limitations to the generalizability of the data. Also discussed briefly is the continued use of mitostorin following its use in induction and consolidation. Allogeneic HCT is discussed in detail, as is the approach to patients with relapsed or refractory AML, who may be candidates for treatment with inhibitors of IDH1 or 2 or FLT3, and whenever possible, clinical trials of emerging agents such as menin inhibitors, epigenetically targeted therapies, and immunotherapeutic approaches. The 2022 ELN guidelines also extensively discuss the value of minimal residual disease, or MRD, testing on decision-making. According to the panel, MRD estimates provide critical prognostic insights, but remain imperfect. 
Not all MRD-positive patients will relapse, and conversely, not all MRD-negative patients avoid relapse. Thus, the authors write, a negative MRD test result may not indicate complete disease eradication, but refers to disease below the MRD test threshold in the tested sample. The panel also states that detectable MRD prior to transplant is a predictor of unfavorable outcomes after transplant. However, there is currently no evidence demonstrating a benefit of additional intensive chemotherapy prior to transplant among MRD-positive patients in first complete remission. MRD is also discussed under indications for allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation. In patients with favorable risk AML, the ELN guidelines say allogeneic HCT in first remission is usually not recommended, with the exception of patients who have inadequate clearance of MRD. By contrast, allogeneic HCT is recommended in adverse risk AML. And for most cases of intermediate risk AML, though guidelines say that a number of centers are currently relying on MRD status to guide this decision-making process. Gary Schiller of David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA contributed a commentary on the new guidelines. He points out that the new guidelines emphasize monitoring of measurable residual disease by real-time PCR at diagnosis and during follow-up in all patients with AML, regardless of risk. Schiller asks in his commentary, are tools available outside academic centers to make operational the author's preference for utilizing PCR for following patients in remission? And what interventions are available outside clinical investigation for managing residual disease? Despite progress, however, Dr. Schiller in his commentary points out the continued clinical challenges in disease classification and treatment. We continue to direct diagnosis and therapy at narrow slices of the disease, he concludes, defining a bewildering number of mutations, co-mutations, and other biologic factors, uncertain as to whether we have made a major long-term impact on AML as a whole. The final study in today's podcast is entitled Punctual and Kinetic MRD Analysis from the Fondazione Italiana Lymphomi MCL0208 Phase 3 Trial in Mantle Cell Lymphoma. And the first author is Simone Ferrero of the University of Torino in Torino, Italy. For younger patients with mantle cell lymphoma, treatment advances in recent years have led to substantial improvements in outcome. With the use of highly effective induction regimens that incorporate rituximab and cytarabine, subsequent autologous stem cell transplantation, and most recently, the use of post-transplant maintenance regimens, progression-free survival rates now exceed 60%, and overall survival rates are over 80%. However, a considerable number of patients still progress after treatment. A number of effective tools are available to identify high-risk patients including baseline biologic variables, prognostic scoring systems, PET scanning, and MRD analysis. MRD status is of growing interest as a number of studies have suggested that MRD is highly predictive of treatment outcome in MCL, yet methods for MRD assessment in MCL to date are heterogeneous. A quick scan of the literature reveals a variety of methods for MRD detection, tissue sources, and time points for analysis. The present study provides a very detailed picture of MRD assessment in MCL over time and by different methods. It's a biological substudy of FILMCL0208, a phase 3 multicenter open label randomized control trial that included 300 younger fit patients with advanced stage MCL in Italy and Portugal. The clinical results of this study were published in 2021 
showing that lenalidomide maintenance after ASCT improved progression-free survival, albeit with toxicity that was not negligible. Now, Ferrero and co-authors report on systematic monitoring of MRD in both peripheral blood and bone marrow in these patients. They used both simple nested PCR and the more standardized real-time quantitative PCR method, or RTQ-PCR, and they looked at MRD over 10 rigorously fixed time points, including post-induction, post-consolidation, post-ASCT, every six months during the maintenance phase through month 24, and again during follow-up through month 36. A trackable molecular marker could be identified in 250 of the 300 patients, or 83%. 225 had enough diagnostic material to set a standard curve for RTQPCR, and 184, or 82%, had an acceptable standard curve. MRD was, as expected, a powerful prognosticator in this study. The MRD analysis was most predictive starting at six months after ASCT. However, the authors were able to predict disease progression with greater certainty by looking at longitudinal data and changes in MRD status over time. Specifically, the risk of relapse gradually increased in patients with persistent bone marrow MRD positivity by RTQPCR. The time-to-progression hazard ratio for patients who were persistently MRD positive following induction treatment was 1.5 with a p-value of 0.086. After ASCT, the time-to-progression, or TTP, hazard ratio was 1.81 with a p-value of 0.043. At 6 and 12 months after ASCT, the hazard ratios were 3.83 and 5.60, respectively, with a p-value less than 0.001 for both time points. As of this report, there were still too few events to perform any meaningful survival evaluations for the later MRD evaluation time points. Longitudinal follow-up provided further insights. Persistent MRD positivity over time outperformed CR as a predictor of time to progression with a hazard ratio of 6.93 and a p-value of 0.006. Likewise, an alternating MRD pattern of positive-negative or negative-positive was highly predictive. With a hazard ratio of 5.51 and p-values less than 0.001. Bone marrow appeared to be superior to peripheral blood for single-time point analysis of MRD, according to authors, though peripheral blood was highly reliable at later time points. As peripheral blood analysis is easier to put into practice, they concluded that it might be the most appropriate source for MRD monitoring that is repeated over the long term. In an accompanying commentary, Piers Blomberry of the University of Melbourne and Chan Yan Shea of the University of Western Australia in Perth, Australia, said this comprehensive longitudinal analysis emphasizes that the predictive power of MRD is at its best when it's evaluated longitudinally across the course of the disease. While conventional allele-specific PCR is an established approach, they added, next-generation sequencing-based MRD assessment is increasingly being used and may result in the identification of a trackable molecular marker in a greater proportion of MCL patients. The findings of the present research paper are especially important given that use of lenalidomide in the Phase three study was associated with substantial hematologic toxicity, infections, and secondary malignancies. With that in mind, MRD assessment could be especially relevant if it can predict which patients would derive the most benefit from continued and potentially toxic therapy. With the potential for further novel, widely applicable, and sensitive molecular MRD technologies in the future, 
as well as ongoing trials evaluating well-tolerated and effective agents such as Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors. The authors concluded, MRD-guided therapy in MCL has the potential to allow de-escalation of therapy to deliver better outcomes for patients. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.